8. Great singing. Amen. I don't know how many of you uh, get weather alerts on your phone. Those things can be a bit of a nuisance at times when they go off so frequently. But they, are, they can also be helpful when there is a storm coming our way. It gives us time to prepare for any power outages or uh, flash floodings. And if you live in Florida, where major hurricanes can be uh, life-threatening, you need to to take notice of those alerts. And you need to take the necessary precautions in order to prepare for those hurricanes. Now, some people choose to hunker down and uh, ride out the storm and hope for the best. But that is a risk they take. In our passage in Revelation today, we will be looking at God's warning of impending judgments, symbolized by seven trumpets. And unlike the weatherman's predictions and possible storms that will hit us, these judgments are certain, and we would do well to heed the warnings and to make the necessary preparations. And the only safe place to be when these judgments come is to be in Christ. If you have Christ as your refuge, then you will be protected from God's wrath because he bore that wrath on your behalf on the cross of Calvary. Just a quick review as to where we are in the book of Revelation. In chapter 6, Jesus began to unfold the scroll which contains the Decree, decrees, or plans of God for the history of the world and the universe. Once he opened the sixth seal, we, get a, we got a preview of the coming final judgment, with, with Christ appearing with fiery vengeance to judge all the ungodly. Uh, In chapter 7, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pauses the narrative of judgment. So before we get into the seventh trumpet, John pauses that narrative and he gives us a picture of the servants of the Lord being sealed on their forehead as a way of identifying them as belonging to God and for protection from the judgment to come. And then at the end of that chapter, we have a beautiful and a glorious preview of the eternal happiness that we will have in the presence of the Lord. We see the redeemed in the presence of God adoring and worshiping Him. Now, with the sealing of the redeemed, after having sealed the redeemed, John then resumes the narrative of judgment in chapter 8 with the opening of the seventh seal. The seventh seal contained the seven trumpet warnings and subsequently the final bowls of judgment, which we won't get to 
till chapter 15 and 16. So the seventh judgment, uh, seventh trumpet, which is in 1115, there's another pause that we will get to, God willing, between the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet. And then we don't see the bowls of wrath till chapter 15. We'll get there in time. Now let's then read verses 1 to 5 of chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flash of flashes of lightnings, and an earthquake. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come before this very sobering passage of judgments that are to come on the earth. We ask for your help, Lord, that we may take note, uh, receive the warnings that are put for us here in your word, and that we as your people, Lord, would find uh, that we are prepared by your grace and mercy for those judgments. And those who are not in Christ today, Father, would be the day that they would be awakened by your Spirit and they would run to Jesus for refuge and safety. We pray this in his mighty and glorious name. Amen. So we read in verse 1, When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. Why the silence? Well, there are a couple of views and a couple of explanations as to why this silence. One, this silence is in an anticipation of the seriousness of what is about to take place. Remember, we had been seeing in chapter 4, once Jesus, uh, chapter 5, uh, chapter 4 and 5, when Jesus receives the the, the uh, scroll, there's a great outburst of praise from the 24 elders, the angels of heaven, everyone praising God. And then, uh, I'm sorry, that's uh, the, the throne of God when we saw in chapter 4. Chapter 5 is when he opened the scroll. But in both 4 and 5, there's all this praise and heaven is filled with noise, good noise, glorious noise of praise and adoration. Well, now, imagine all that praise all of a sudden came to dead silence. No one said a thing, it says, for half an hour. That's amazing. What is the purpose of this? That What is John trying to convey to us? Well, it says it's in anticipation as they are considering what's about to go down, what's about to take place. There is awe. There is fear. There's, there's in, the, in essence, there's dread of what is about to take place. They stand there in silent amazement. Today, people mock at sin and judgment because most of what they have known for the majority of their life is God's mercy. 
No matter how bad things are for us here, we still daily benefit from His goodness. Look, we all are, are enjoying, uh, there's uh, sunshine. None of us paid for this. Did any of you have to pay to get sunshine out there? A gentle breeze we enjoy, pleasant, all these things God has given us to enjoy. We just take them for granted. And that sunshine is giving us food and making the photosynthesis to happen. And I picked some tomatoes for my wife this morning from the garden, nice and juicy, ripe tomatoes. How did that happen? God's goodness. God's goodness. We just plant it, water it, and God gives the increase. It's His water, His sunshine, and it's His food that we enjoy. So these are things that every one of us can enjoy on a daily basis. And so as a result, most people think of God as a benevolent God, right? And, and so He is. He is a benevolent God, indeed. But you see, the inhabitants of heaven know God even more intimately. Because He's not just a benevolent God. He's also a God of justice. He's a God of righteousness. And He cannot overlook sin as we see what He did on the cross in His Son, Jesus Christ. So as a result of that, that makes Him stand in awe and reverence as, a, as when His judgment is about to be poured out on the inhabitants of the earth. Another explanation for the silence is that God's attentiveness for His people's cry to Him in prayer. As you recall, that the angel, we're first introduced to the seven angels who are given the trumpets, and then another angel comes, and he has this censer in his hand, this fire, this fire pan, in which he's given, sense, uh, he's given incense to put on there to offer to God, and mixed with that incense is the prayers of the saints. So it, it's, it's telling us possibly that this silence is that God is given full attention to the prayers of his saints. Now, it's not that God can't hear above all the noise of heaven, but that he's just, it's just symbolically speaking that he is given full attention to those prayers. Isn't that amazing, brothers and sisters? God is fully attentive to your cry. You may not think that. You don't see what's happening but he is fully there in the moment, hearing as that cry is being raised up to God. That's ex extremely encouraging. What's the significance? Why half an hour? Why not 10 minutes? Why not five? What is the significance of uh, half an hour? Well, I believe the half hour is to assure the saints that though God's judgment seemed to be delayed, yet in God's estimation of time, it's like a half hour. What's a half hour in, in the scheme of things, in our lifespan? You know, if I'm going to drive from here to there, it's no big deal. In other words, God is saying this time from his last judgment on the earth to this judgment that's about to come is like a half hour. You know, one day with the Lord is like a thousand. Well, you know how long it's been since Noah's flood, when God devastated the earth with a flood, with a worldwide flood? Well, it's almost 4,500 years. 45, so to us, it's millennials. But to God, it's like a half hour. He doesn't work on time. He doesn't have a time clock like we do, right? 24-hour days, seven days a week, 365 days, and so on. 
as Peter says, God is not slow concerning his judgment. It is certainly coming, but he has delayed that judgment for a reason, as we will see. People today ask, if there is a God, why is he allowing injustice and evil in the world? Has anybody asked that to you? Have you heard that? I'm sure you have, many of you. If you do any kind of uh, evangelism, on the street evangelism, this comes up often. Why is God doing this? I, I, I can't believe that God would allow this if he is there. He's either impotent, he can't help it, or uh, that he doesn't care. Well, let's suppose that God is going to put an end to all evil and suffering. Okay, so work with me here. That means he would have to judge every human act that has caused others to suffer. Are you with me? Okay. That would, that would, he would, so all adulterers, all liars, all fornicators, all murderers, all thieves, would have to, he would have to put an end to them. He would have to put them to death. Where would that leave you and me? Where would that leave you and me? Have we not, by our own words and actions, caused some suffering in the world? Do you see then that God's patience is really a mercy to mankind? It's a mercy that he's delaying his judgment. God's long-suffering is to lead us to repentance. And many people have found the Lord in times of suffering, while sadly others have hardened their hearts. Verse 2. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. These seven angels standing in the presence of God are believed to be the archangels. Now, two of them, uh, the scripture mentions their names, uh, Gabriel and uh, Michael, two archangels that we know of. Uh, some of the uh, apocryphal books that are non-inspired, Book of Enoch names four are additional archangels, Raphael, Uriel, Serkiel, and Reguel. That's where, Raphael, that's where your name comes from. What is the significance of these trumpets? What's the significance of these trumpets? Uh, Pastor Joe mentioned this in his prayer. The trumpets were used for different purposes in the Old Testament. In Numbers 10, Moses was instructed to make two trumpets of silver. They were used to summon the people of God to gather to the tent of meeting when there is an announcement that is to be made, just like we're gathered here. God has summoned us to be here. They were used to um, also to sound an alarm at time of war, to sound an alarm that the enemy is coming, be prepared, be ready. And, the, and then the, the people, the army would be mustered and everyone would take their place and, and they were ready for the invasion or what have you. And, in, and also in celebration at the time of sacred feasts. Uh, and later on we see in, uh, when there was a coronation of a king, they would sound the trumpet. But here in Revelation, they are used to announce the day of God's wrath. They're used to announce the day of God's wrath, as Pastor Joe read from, from uh, Joel chapter 2. 
The same thing in Zephaniah, it says in verse chapter 1, verse 14, it says, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hasting fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blasts and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlement. So they are used to announce the coming judgment in order to call people to repentance. Then in verses 3 or 4 and 4, we have this beautiful scene. Look with me there. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Here we see an angel acting as an intercessor, offering the prayers of the saints. We saw this also in chapter 5, when the 24 elders uh, were offering up the prayers of the saints in their golden bowls that are full of incense. The angel is given holy incense to mix with the prayers as a symbol of purifying them and giving them a sweet aroma. Christ, through his atoning sacrifice, sanctifies our prayers and offers them to God as a sweet incense unto the Lord. In Scripture, incense is often associated with prayer. David says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice in Psalm 141. So this is a real encouragement, especially brothers and sisters, to suffering saints as they pray, to know that their prayers ascend to the very presence of God. They may not be answered in the moment, but they will be answered in time. They will be answered in time. So take heart, dear suffering saint, whatever your burden may be, whatever is the ache of your heart, Some of you have children who have gone astray from the Lord, unsaved spouse, the loss of loved ones, or seeing loved ones go through cancer or some other chronic illness. Your cries are heard in heaven, and God in His mercy will make all things new in His time. We're called to wait patiently on the Lord. We're not to think that our prayers are falling on deaf ears. They are going into the very presence of God. These prayers that are mentioned in in chapter 8 that are offered by the angels, these prayers could could have been offered centuries or, 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 or millennials ago by these saints who passed. How long, Lord? How long? And it says they come up before the Lord. Now, it goes without saying that these prayers must be offered in the context of a holy life, or they won't be acceptable. Even as God told the people through the prophet Isaiah, stop bringing your meaningless offerings, your incense is detestable 
to me. Why? Because they were living in sin. Cornelius' prayers and almsgiving rose up as a memorial offering to God because he was a man who feared the Lord. The Philippian believers' monetary gift to support Paul in his ministry were a fragrant offering, as Paul calls it, an acceptable sacrifice to God because what Paul tells us about them in chapter 1, that they lived a life of faith and obedience. So in the same way, when we offer prayers, we must be careful that we are offering them in the context of a life of faith and obedience. We recognize, brothers and sisters, none of our prayers, even our faith and obedience, apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, can be accepted. We recognize that. But we must not be presumptuous to think, well, I'm washed in the blood so I could live as I please. God hears my prayer because Jesus died on the cross for me. We cannot uh, separate the two things. We must be living holy lives. Immediately after the offering of the prayers of the saints, the angel, in a dramatic fashion, hurls the censer onto the earth. Uh, Look with me in verse 5. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. By throwing fire uh, from heaven on earth, the angel is foreshadowing the judgment that are about to take place by the seven trumpets. This makes an allusion to the angel of Ezekiel in chapter 10, verse 2, where, who, who was commanded to pour out coals of fire on Jerusalem from the heavenly throne room as a judgment against her sin. The thunder, lightning, and earthquake that happens uh, uh, once the angel throws the censer down are an allusion to when God came down on Mount Sinai and the mountain trembled at his presence. Here, God is coming down in judgment, and it is not just the mountain trembling, but the entire earth. A similar language is used when the seventh angel poured out his bowl of wrath on, in the air. It says, chapter 16, verse 18, there was flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. This, of course, will strike fear and terror in the hearts of people, and the weathermen and seismologists will have no explanation for it. Now, this gesture now sets the stage for the seven angels to sound their trumpets. Verse 6. Now, the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. These angels have been fully prepared for this hour for a long time, for millennials, as we said. And now the hour has come. Before the angels begin to blow their trumpet, let me just give, make a couple of introductory comments about the trumpet judgments. The first six we will be reading about in chapter 8 and 9, and the seventh is not, as I said earlier, until 11.15. We will only be covering the first four trumpets today, uh, as, we, as you see in your outline. 
The first four trumpets, Revelation 8, 7 through 12, affect the created order, the created order, uh, I'm sorry, the created world, the seas, uh, first the earth, the dry earth, the seas, the streams and rivers, and finally the celestial bodies, sun, moon, and star, which will also affect human survival. The fifth and sixth trumpet, which we'll read about in chapter 9, God willing, uh, are, ca- are caused by demonic forces and are directed at, uh, at the unrepented sinners, causing them torment and death. A third uh, comment here is that the destruction brought about by these six trumpets is partial in scope, as noted by the clause one-third, one-third. Their purpose is to call people to repentance before the sounding of the seventh trumpet, which will bring about the full and complete wrath of God on mankind, as demonstrated by the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. Finally, as a, by way of introduction, uh, these trumpet judgments, like the seven bowls of wrath, make an allusion to the ten plagues of Egypt, except much worse, as we will see. There should be no question, brethren, that these judgments are of divine origin. But of course, sinful man will try to explain them away as the act of Mother Nature or something to that effect. Let's now look at the first four trumpets, chapter 7, uh, verse 7 rather. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burnt up, and a third of the trees were burnt up, and all green grass was burnt up. So this first judgment is affecting the trees and the dry ground and the vegetation. And it makes an allusion to several similar judgments in the Old Testament. Remember, Revelation uh, makes, uh, most of it is an allusion to something in the Old Testament. So we always need to come back and say, where is John getting this from? And we need to go back and it helps us to, to understand it, right? To understand it better. So, like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, where God rained fire and sulfur in Genesis 19 on the wicked inhabitants of the cities. Also the seventh plague in Egypt, when God rained hail and fire on the Egyptians in Exodus 9. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Ezekiel's vision of destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel 10, where a man took burning coals of fire from among the cherubim, and scatter them over Jerusalem. We read later in Ezekiel 38, God defeats Gog and Magog with hailstones, fire, and sulfur. So these are some of the Old Testament references that John uh, uses here. Uh, But these judgments in the Old Testament were localized, while these end-time judgments will be intensified and widespread as indicated by the clause, one-third of the earth, one-third of the earth. As we will see, one-third of the sea, one-third of the earth, one-third of the rivers, and so on. And like the, uh, this is, of course, this uh, is an escalation 
of what we saw in chapter 6 on the seals. When God opened the seal, when the Lord Jesus opened the first four seals with the, remember the four horsemen, the apocalyptic horsemen, there was famine, there was conquest, there was uh, uh, plagues, and it says one-fourth of the earth, one-fourth of mankind were destroyed. Here, now you could see the intensity increasing, it's one-third. And then when we get to the bowls of wrath, it's full. It's complete. There's no more one-third, no more one-fourth, but all of mankind, all the fish will be destroyed, and all the rivers, and so on. Uh, Jesus' foretelling of these events in, in Luke 21 says, Luke 21, 25, And there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, the stress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world, for the powers of heavens will be shaken. You will not need to go to a horror movie to get the experience or the thrill for some to see, to get scared. No, this will be, you will be living it. These are the words of Christ, the Son of God, who cannot lie. So if you're not in Christ, turn to Christ today before it's too late. So the first trumpet judgment was aimed at the earth. The second trumpet judgment will be aimed at the sea. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. John says, like a great mountain, like a great mountain. So some kind of a huge burning mass of rock was hurled towards the earth. This could be a giant meteorite or asteroid which probably exploded on impact as it hits the water and spread to affect, uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, yeah, exploded on impact as it hits the water and spread to affect a third part of the sea. It is difficult to identify any Old Testament reference to a mountain falling uh, from the sky as is mentioned here. Some, some suggest maybe John is imagining this volcanic eruption that takes place because 11 years ago, uh, Mount Vesuvius uh, destroyed Pompeii uh, with its eruption. Others say it comes from Jewish apocalyptic sources like one Enoch, uh, which speaks of a burning mountain. Nevertheless, it should be clear to all that this is an act of God. It's an act of God. Besides the fish that die, we're told ships will be destroyed as well. This would be most likely due to the gigantic tsunami that will be generated by this massive rock. This blazing mountain turns the water of the sea into blood. This is a reference to the Egyptian, uh, to the first Egyptian plague in Exodus 7, where the water was turned into blood, killing the fish and making the water undrinkable. Here again, it is partial judgment, and its purpose is to warn and to lead people to repentance. In comparison, again, to the second bowl in chapter 16, where we read that every living thing in the sea died. 
So the third trumpet brings destruction on the inland rivers uh, and, and springs of water, making them undrinkable and causing many people to die. Look with me at verse 10 and 11. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a on third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. This trumpet is very similar to the second, with a large burning object being hurled into the waters on the earth. This time it's not the sea, not the, uh, the salt water sea, oceans, but it's the inland, the rivers and the sources of water uh, that are being affected, where we get our drinking water. If you have a well water, that's where it comes from, the springs from underneath that feed into your well water. Well, all those springs will be affected, at least a third of them, according to uh, and again, the third, brothers and sisters, is, is, is just telling us that it's partial. We're not to measure, okay, well, how many waters are in the earth? Okay, this much. Well, a third of that. I don't, that's not the point. The point is it's a partial judgment, okay? And a number has to be used, right? Just to give us an idea. It's a fraction, right? A third is a quarter or a third are fractions or a half or so forth. Uh, so... This, uh, uh, this object is referred to as a star, which is made up. Now, stars are made up of not rock, but fluid and gases, right? And so it says that uh, this burning heavenly body, as it enters the atm atmosphere, it breaks up and scatters into this, what this one commentator calls blobs, as, uh, over the rivers and springs of water that God directs as he sees fit where they should go. And so once they, once they come on the water, those waters turn bitter, as we see with the name of this, and, and basically poison the water so it's undrinkable, and people die as a result of it. Uh, and falling stars are often associated with the second coming of our Lord Jesus. Uh, this star is called Wormwood, there is a plant that's called wormwood, and it's very bitter. That's where its name comes from. Uh, and it will, as I said, it will affect the uh, water. It will render it undrinkable, and both to man and to animals. In Jeremiah 9, God gives his people bitter water to drink as a result of their sin of idolatry. In the same way today, people have left the Lord to follow idols. Even though he has given us, as I said earlier, many, many, many benefits and mercies like clean water, yet we take it for granted. Uh, the, here in the West, we don't have to be concerned so much about clean water, but in underdeveloped countries, it's a huge problem. It's a huge crisis. It's a huge health crisis the availability of clean water. And yet God has given us, uh, by his grace and mercy, daily to drink. And instead of worshiping him and praising him and serving him, we turn to our idols. But 
nonetheless, He made a way for us to have our sins forgiven by sending us His Son, who is the water of life for our souls. And He offers Himself to every one of us today to come to Him and find soul satisfaction. As He tells us in John 7, If anyone thirsts, let him come to Me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Said this referring to the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, friend, if you're not in Christ, have you come to the Savior to receive this life-giving Spirit, this life-giving water to your soul? As your body needs water, your soul needs the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the water of life. Receive Him as your Lord and Savior, and you will have eternal life. Repent of your sins and put your trust in Him as the one who died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. He came the first time to die on the cross, but the second time He's coming for judgment and to reign and to rule. So please, today is a day to put your faith in Christ and look to Him and turn away from those as what the Scripture calls broken cisterns that could never satisfy. These supposedly hold water of life, and you're running after this and running after that, and you're making, desiring to find somehow soul satisfaction in these things, and they're never meant to fulfill you. Christ is the only true water for your soul. Look to Him and live. Now, we come to the fourth trumpet, and this one will affect the illumination of the celestial bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Look with me at verse 12. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. So this striking, as it says here, that the uh, third of the sun was struck, this striking of the sun and stars must have uh, slowed down their internal reaction, thus reducing their power output by a third, or whatever that amount may be. Uh, As you know, there's energy that's happening in the sun, these, uh, these flares, and it's repeatable, it's, it's self-sustaining. And by reducing its power output, it's slowing down its ac- internal activity, so it's producing less light, both the stars and the sun. This, of course, this temporary. this is only temporary because we see later in the fourth bowl of Wrath in 16.8, what happened there is that the sun is so hot that is scorching people. You know, you're hearing about temperatures 115, 116 in, in Phoenix, Arizona. I, I texted my daughter yesterday, I said, how are you managing? They said it's been like record heat, record-breaking heat uh, for like number of days. I heard somewhere 21 days, uh, over 110 and above. Well, she says, we just stay inside because it's too hot to do anything outside. Well, this would be even, later would be even more intensified. Uh, 
Darkness is often associated with the coming of the day of the Lord, as Pastor Joe read in Joel 2, verse 2, For the day of the Lord is coming, it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Mark 13, the Lord foretelling of these days, he says, But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And when they will see, and when they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So when we see these things happening, know that the coming of the Lord is at hand. And then verse thirteen, it transitions us from the four plagues sent by God on the natural world to the fifth and sixth judgments that are directed at the unrepented humanity. Look with me at verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an angel crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. The woes are repeated three times to indicate the severity of the judgments that are about to take place by these last three trumpets. These last three judgments will not fall on believers, but unbelievers only, as we will see next time. In this image, an eagle is symbolically used to herald the distress that will accompany the final three trumpets. The eagle is a bird of prey, and it is known for its swiftness and strength to demonstrate uh, how bad and how quickly the judgment will come. So stay tuned till next time to hear about the grasshoppers that come out of the abyss to torment the unbelieving. Uh, if, you, if you thought these judgments were bad, well, spoiler alert, it only gets worse. So what does that mean to us? Uh, you might say, okay, so you convinced me that judgment is coming, but what does that mean to me? So what? How does that affect me? What is that? How am I to live as a result of that? We're not living in those days now. Well, I have a few points of application. One is preach the gospel while it is still the day of mercy. Peter tells us to uh, to why God seems to be delaying His judgment. He tells us 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but patient is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is delaying it on purpose to give people more opportunity to repent. But the only way they are going to realize it is if we tell them that God is delaying His judgment on you. Therefore, repent now before it's too late. The closer we come to the end, the harder people will become in their sin. Look with me. We're going to jump ahead just real quick. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 20 to 21. So this verses come right after the sixth Trumpets. So all six trumpets have taken place. So what's the response of mankind to these judgments? Well, look. Did they repent? 
Here's what it says. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give, worship, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see to, or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. After six trumpets of warnings, the whole world is turning upside down. Do you think that mankind at that point in time are going to realize, hey, these things are happening because of our sin. We need to repent and get right with God. Do you think that's what's going to happen? The scripture testifies and bears witness that no, they're going to become more hardened in their sin, continue in their sin. We were just reading in our family worship in Genesis, uh, I think, 19, where the Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, the angels strike the people that are outside the door that are trying to knock the door down because they want to get to, to have uh, uh, relations with angels, the, uh, the men of the city. And it says they were struck with blindness. You think at that point, they get the, po- the picture. It says they wearied themselves trying to find the door. In other words, they didn't stop, even though they were blind. The God brought judgment on them, and they still kept at it. Well, that's the idea that we get here. So, brethren, while it is still the day of mercy, there is hope for people to get saved. Because there's coming a day, they're not going to hear it. They're not going to hear it. So let's press on with the Great Commission. Amen? A second thing that this passage encourages us to do is to pray fervently because our prayers are heard in heaven. Did you notice how the prayers of the saints produced a great change on the earth? It was after the prayers that the immediately after he offered those prayers that he takes the censer and he casts it on the earth as a sign of judgment. That shows us that our prayers are woven into the plans and purposes of God, which ought to strengthen our commitment to pray both privately and corporately. So brethren, take advantage of corporate prayer. These are the corporate prayers of the saints. Yes, pray in your own uh, closet. Indeed, do. You must. We must. Each of us. But don't neglect the corporate prayer of God's people when we're all united as one, lifting up our hearts in prayer unto God and God hearing those prayers as an offering unto Him. Because prayer is not only a weapon against Satan's temptation, but it is also a direct assault on the kingdom of darkness. Listen to these words by William Grinnell. He says, Satan cannot deny, but that great wonders have been wrought by prayer. As the spirit of prayer goes up, so his kingdom goes down. This is our weapon against the enemy. We should not expect God to bless our efforts apart from prayer. If we want the gospel to advance in our day, if we want sinners to be delivered from Satan's dominion, if we want the power of sin to be broken in our lives or the lives of our loved ones, then we must be fervently in prayer. 
Remember the encouragement that James gives us, that the prayer of the righteous man and righteous woman avail much. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. So we have direct access into the presence of God. What a privilege, brothers and sisters. You may think our prayers aren't heard, but this passage tells us otherwise. So let us continue fervent in prayer. A third thing that this passage encourages us to do is this, to live soberly and confidently as we await Christ's return. Soberly and confidently. One, we are to be sober and vigilant against these two things. One, tolerance and compromise. Tolerance and compromise. We must be vigilant against tolerance. You see, here in the West, we are sliding into Sodom and Gomorrah by degrees. And little by little, we can become tolerant of these heinous sins of our society. We were just seeing Robert Bork. Bork, he wrote a book. He was... uh, a candidate for a Supreme Court judge says, slouching towards Gomorrah. He wrote it back in the 90s. I wonder what he would say today. Right? Uh, So, little by little, we can become tolerant of these heinous sins. The sins of homosexuality, transgenderism, murder of the innocent children in the womb. Don't shock us anymore. We... It's become part of society, and we can become numbed by them. But you have to remember, brothers and sisters, it was those types of sins that caused God to rain fire and brimstone on Sodom. It will be the very same sins that will bring about the seventh trumpet and bulls of wrath. Our heart attitude towards the sins of our society should be like that of righteous Lot. Do you recall what Peter wrote about him? We would not know he was righteous unless Peter told us he was righteous because when you read in Genesis, that's not the impression you get. But it tells us, listen to what he says here. This is a testimony of Holy Scripture. It says, He was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. He was vexed, he was tormented because of their lawless deeds and actions. And that should be our heart attitude too, brothers and sisters. That should be how we respond to these things. Not, well, you know, what are you going to do? That's just how it is, you know. Society, you know, mankind's just going to be bad. We should be vexed, we should be grieving about these things. We should not just kind of, you know, no longer be shocked by them. God is shocked at the, at the wickedness of man. Remember when he came to Abraham, he says, I'm going to see if what I am, I am seeing is really true. I'm going to go to Sodom and Gomorrah because their cry of their sin has rose up to heaven. And so he comes to investigate. Well, eventually that cry of our sin would reach to the point where God will come in judgment. Secondly, we must be vigilant against compromise. So the first thing 
is that we must be vigilant against tolerance. The second is we must be vigilant against compromise. If things continue going as they are in our nation with the progressive left pushing their godless ideology on us, we can see a day coming if you don't affirm this godless ideology, we may not be able to do business or get a job. And for some Christian business owners, that, that day is already here, as we've been seeing in the Supreme Court cases that have been coming up with the florist and web designer and the, uh, the cake designer. Our temptation will be, brothers and sisters, to go along in order to get along. That's the temptation, is to become, uh, to compromise. Hey, i got to put bread on the table. i got to feed my family, you know. Uh, life is tough. You gotta, a man's got to do what a man's got to do. So we compromise, right? We try to justify these things. And so, but you recall in Revelation, these business owners were, Christian business owners were losing business because they couldn't be part of the guild. Because to be part of the guild, you have to offer the sacrifices at the festivals. And they couldn't do it. So they lost contracts. They lost business. And that's coming, brothers and sisters, as it already has come to some. So we must be ready to give up our liberties and comforts for the sake of the gospel. Amen? Amen. That's what this passage, that's what it's telling us to do. Finally, be vigilant against tolerance and compromise. But secondly, if these judgments are to happen in our generation, know that you are safe in Christ. Amen. Know that you are safe in Christ. If you're in Christ Jesus, you need not fear these judgments because you, you're covered by the blood. And Jesus has already bore your judgment on the cross of Calvary. So you need not fear. Instead, brothers and sisters, when we see these things coming, we're to rejoice. You say rejoice. How can we rejoice? Rejoice because Jesus is coming. Amen. He's at the door. He is near. And in fact, when we read in the scriptures, there's great joy in heaven. There's great joy on earth when the Lord comes in judgment. I'm going to read to you some passages from Revelation 19. A sister, Anita, brought this to my attention with, uh, with some a devotional she was doing. Uh, Revelation 19 says, After this I heard what seemed to be loud voice of great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belongs to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Verse 6. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory for the marriage, the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. There's great joy in heaven when God comes, comes in judgment. God's, and so this should be our attitude as well as we see these things. God's righteous kingdom will finally come. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The kingdoms of this world would become the kingdoms of our Lord and His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. 
And that should cause us rejoicing. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. Who's leading us? Uh, After Brother Sal uh, lead us in prayer, we'll take two to three minutes of silent prayer, and then I will uh, uh, give some instruction regarding the Lord's Supper.